This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 10, verses 4 to 20. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and is It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the Lord or the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our message. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. This is the word of the Lord. The greatest but uh, potentially most problematic statements in all of the Christian faith is Jesus is Lord. Um... It's the greatest because of how you were just singing, and if you, in in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And in your spirit, uh, in in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, reminds you of your faith. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's, It's trust. It's putting your trust again in Jesus Christ. So it's great, but it's problematic because of the word Lord, and in our human understanding, it is virtually impossible for us to understand this word without human ideas of power and hierarchy and even oppression. And someone who is getting into a place of declaring their lordship, who in most cases, particularly in our understanding historically, would be doing so by exerting power and domination. But in this, there is, there is none of that. Uh, it's not, it doesn't mean that we haven't used the, the term that way, Jesus is Lord. And, and you, can, you can be sure that some of your non-Christian friends, it, you might even be careful about using a, a, 
a statement like that around them because they, they would hear it potentially as only a statement of hierarchy and exclusion. But in faith, you know this, right? He is Lord. I don't feel any exclusion, hierarchy, domination in that. I want by the end of the sermon to get you again to the place to consider that statement in terms of your own life and I hope your faith as we consider the Christian gospel. I start uh, this week a few days ago was Kim Whaley's birthday. Kim's not here today. She misses most of January and February because she coaches uh, Special Olympics, uh, snowshoeing. There's a ton of things for, for other people. Kim has become, through the years at our house, a, a member of our family. And uh, we used to joke that sometimes she's Todd's friend and sometimes she's Jen's friend. So when we go bike riding together, she's my friend or we watch hockey. Uh, but uh, when they're, well, I don't know, go to yoga, I guess, or whatever else it is, then she's Jen's friend. The truth is she's become a member of our family. And we're very grateful for her. And, uh, but it's, it's a terrible and sinful thing that she's not in church. But we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Um, we had gifts for her for her birthday this week. I think her birthday was on Wednesday. And you say, she's a member of the family and you don't know her birthday? No, that's how I roll. But I think it was Wednesday. And Tuesday night, we have our home group Bible study. And so we were going to have a special little time for Kim. And and we were going to sing happy birthday. And we were going to give her these presents. And so I texted her during the day to confirm that she's coming because she doesn't always attend. And I got no response, which is unusual for Kim. She's one of these people that usually fires back a text right away. And so I texted again, you're coming to home group tonight, right? And no response again. I contacted Keith and Allison because uh, they're very close with Kim as well, thinking that maybe they'd give her a ride up. And they hadn't heard from her. She hadn't responded to, the, to them either. And just as we're starting home group, now you might think this is coincidence, but I think this is how you know people do this. Um, so now it's too late, right? Just as we're starting home group, like past the, the, you know, the treats and the coffee time, and now we're in the living room and we're about to, you know, talk about God, um, then a text comes in. Oops, sorry, didn't get your text, fell asleep, won't make it tonight. And uh, that was that. She said she'd had a terrible night the night before and hadn't fallen asleep till like three of them, or woke up at three in the morning or something. Um, and I expressed concern. Like, you know, you're supposed to express concern. But then I also quickly said, well, I guess you're not going to get your gifts then. (laughs) If there's a gift for you and you don't claim it, what's the use of it? Now, I I didn't really want to tell you this part. Thursday night, Kim came over, watched hockey. Keith and Allison came over too. We gave her the gifts and it was all wonderful. So, but anyway, that doesn't fit so much for the illustration This series that we've been taking up, the Christian gospel, and last week the chapters of transition, from chapters 1 to 8, which describe the Christian gospel, often in theological terms, to chapter 12 and following, which describe what it means to live in the light of the gospel. So for you, what does it mean to live as a Christian in this world, in your life, in your family? So from the description of the gospel up to chapter 8 and then chapter 12 and following, living in the light of the mercy of God. But we have chapters 9 to 11 squeezed in between here. Uh, And what are these chapters all about? Last week with chapter 9, we mentioned that what matters first 
is this gospel. In other words, it's not our behavior or our response or our praying of the prayer or our... None of that, please hear this, none of that initiates anything. It's all response. God started this whole thing. God created and God redeems. It's God first. But the other point to remember in the Christian gospel is it's God first, but God is good. Now, if you just, I mean, think of of how people think of faith and religion in the world, those two points alone counter to a lot of what people have as ideas about faith. It's God first, and God is good. God has turned towards humanity. In fact, he's turned towards all of humanity. And we know this in Jesus Christ, the manger and the cross. So the first question is not what about me, or as we phrased it last week, who is in and who is out, which becomes a very domineering question in religious circles. That question can become operative even in places of of good Christian faith and worship. Why can that question take on such power? Because you would live in fear always of whether you're in or not. And here's the formula. Here's how to be in and here's who is out. So to a people asking who is in, much of chapter 9 is addressed to these people, who is in, the, the, the movement is made away from that question to the more important question, who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? The question is not who gets the prize, right? Paul doesn't seem to answer that question. If God chooses, in other words, if God saves some and damns others, that doesn't seem fair, does it? And that that language is right in chapter 9. And historically, it's torturous to think of that. And Christian theology that has emphasized God chooses some, therefore, by extension, he must damn others. What would that be like to be a child living in that kind of understanding? Now you have to try to prove that you're chosen. It's a terrible thing. So you can see when you try to answer that question in that direction, what if you answer the question in the other direction? Well, we choose. It's up to you. And this is the, meta, this is the you know, good revivalist preachers always say, you could leave here this morning and get hit by a bus. And if you didn't pray the prayer, right? And the, and the thing is, that's always like, you're, just, you're this close from burning. Right? But now it's all up to you. What about a child growing up in that kind of climate who thinks a lot and works through these things? Well, they might have a different kind of torture. I better pray this again just to be sure. I don't know if I really asked him into my heart. You see how answering the question in one of those two ways, so what Paul does is move us to another question. Who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? And the reminder toward the end of chapter 9 and into the beginning of chapter 10 is to to move away from these two ways of understanding, not even answering them. So you can have the theological arguments, that's fine. But Paul will remind you in this text, Christ is the end. In other words, if you want to look for any kind of answer, you have to look to Jesus Christ. He's the purpose and completion and fulfillment. And our role is to be loved by God and to participate in this ongoing redemption. In other words... Our role in this faith as we live this life is to announce with our life our gifts to announce the gospel. So today we get to Romans chapter 10. Uh, We start at verse 4, but I'm going to go back a little bit in just a moment. Romans chapter 10, redemption. 
And we note, again, that it's necessary in our faith, particularly if we've been raised in more of an evangelical upbringing, it's necessary in our faith very often to remind us that the word salvation has at least as much, probably more in my thinking, has at least as much to do with what we're saved into than it does to have to do with what we're saved from. The emphasis, of course, especially for what a child struggling with one of those two ways I presented earlier, is to think about what you need to be saved from. But salvation brings you into this whole world of life and light. Redemption. You're called to this this life. You're formed and invited and shaped. You're redeemed. There's been a gift offered and accepted. Briefly today, uh, and this, this translates into our current culture, even though our current culture particularly in Canada, wouldn't be called highly religious. There's the concept of religious blindness that we'll look at, trying to make ourselves right. And there's a secular counterpart to that, that I see every time I turn on the TV and every time I walk more than, but just, just everywhere, this religious blindness that has a secular, element, secular form. We'll look at the concept of earning Jesus, which has to do again with exclusion. That we're going to either ascend to heaven or descend to hell and get Jesus and bring him back for people. And we can use that in Christian circles sometimes. I bring you Jesus. And there's some scriptural kind of uh, uh, echoes of that. But this text is going to clarify what that might mean. We're going to consider that the gospel is near to all. The word is near. And finally, we're going to consider the response and the truth that some people reject the gift. So I want to do that first by taking a step back to the beginning of chapter 10 that Jill did not read for us. It started at verse 4 for the reading. But I want to look at this concept that's in in the opening verses of, of the chapter, and that's the concept of having zeal without knowledge. In the context of Romans chapter 10, Paul again will say, I deeply long that my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters, would know the gospel of Jesus Christ, would know Jesus Christ. And he identifies them as having a particular trait. They have, he says, zeal without knowledge. Now I have on there that the definition of zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. In other words, it could mean that you are very, very committed to something. But that thing is wrong. So now, think of that in religious circles, but think of that also in secular circles. We have in our culture sometimes, and I don't want to overstate this, the idea that, particularly in terms of religion, but other things too, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Right? Paul speaks against that right at the beginning of this. He says, I mean, they have zeal, he says, but the problem is they have zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, enthusiasm without understanding. The secular counterparts to this can be found everywhere. In medicine, right? Going against advice that may clearly be helpful and pursuing, well, no, but it's this way. I say it's this way. Now, I'm not trying to counter any particular, you know, whatever it is that people you know, go on the internet and find this information or that, but you can at least give me this. Sometimes those things are just wrong. And you can hear of these cases where parents are fighting to be able to make decisions for the child against whatever advice. And, and at times, and I'm not trying to take a particular case here, but you could look at that and go, well, they're zealous, but it's wrong. 
It's what Paul's talking about in terms of religion. You can see this in politics. You can see this in social issues. How many news stories could you find just today where you saw this zeal without knowledge? It is, of course, a caveat. The dangerous thing here is to kind of look down your nose at other people. Yeah, they're so stupid and I'm so smart. That gets you into all other kinds of trouble. But Paul says they have zeal, but they don't have knowledge. In so many cases, this is about the second concept that Paul will speak about, which is they're seeking to establish uh, righteousness. They're religiously blind, and the nature of their religious blindness is demonstrated by this. Is a very, I really want you to get this term for today, okay? They are seeking in their religious practice to establish their own place, to establish their own righteousness. Now, what does it mean if you're seeking to establish your own, and I use that language purposefully, to establish your own righteousness? That often comes, not always, but often comes at the exclusion of just about everybody else. I will show them. I will achieve it when most haven't. This is the religious blindness that Paul's talking about. They think they might know, or other people think they might know, but it's me that knows, my little group, my little community. Very often, this is the domain on which religion is criticized in this world. You people gathering there in that church, you think you know. And the one thing I know, and this is, what, this is one of the reasons so many people are reticent to come into religious communities... The one thing, and even, they might be wrong about this, by the way, because many religious communities are very welcoming, very loving. But people can have the, the idea that the one thing those people know who are gathering over there is that they're right and I'm wrong. There is a religious blindness that seeks to establish our own righteousness. But the interesting thing, though, that this is the critique of the world is that the world, I mean this, I'm absolutely convinced of this, the world is much better at this than the church. The world lives and breathes on establishing its own righteousness. I've made it, you haven't, I'm secure, you're not. Even sometimes in kindness these things can happen. You don't have to go far at all and see this operating in your life. Don't, it's not a religious tendency. It's a human tendency. But the religious expression of this is marked in Romans, a group of people trying to establish their own place by religious living, righteousness by works. And it's marked by this exclusivity. And, and I'm convinced, you know, I think we have a lot of growing to do still in Christian faith, just as, as, as a church, as a whole. And I, trust me, I don't think I've got the truth and nobody else does. But one of the things I think that we need to work on in Christian faith is this concept of exclusivity. We have to be able to deal with it. I'm not that confident in how to do that yet. But this idea that we have this and other people don't. People are working to establish their own. This is not an act of creation, but an act of confirmation. I don't use that in the Catholic or Anglican or Presbyterian terms, but creation is what God is after. Life out of death, something out of nothing. But too often what we want as humans is confirmation that we're at least better than somebody else or in more secure standing. Defining who we are by saying that others are not that. I carefully offer the following example. And I think I've told you about this before. And obviously this is like something that's just stuck in, in my thoughts. 
uh, when, when our boys used to play hockey and we occasionally had to go to Hollyburn Country Club. Because I'm a bit of a disturber. Anytime somebody tells me, you can't do that, two things happen. I want to do it, and then I want to be bothered by it. And whenever we went to play hockey at Hollyburn Country Club, and by the way, I'm not seeking to criticize people who are members of country clubs or whatever else. In fact, I've, uh, you know, had some very uh, enjoyable times, and how do I do that? I'm not casting aspersions at a particular group of people. I'm looking at a tendency in our human, uh, in how we live as people, that is interesting both religiously and in the secular life. We'd go to Hollyburn Country Club, and the first thing, as soon as you drive in, you're told, you don't belong here, you belong there. And I've got, like, this big hockey bag to carry, but I'm not allowed to park anywhere near the door. Why? Well, the sign's there. These aren't Hollyburn, I don't think they're from Hollyburn Country Club. I just got them off of Google Images, right? Private members parking only. So where do I want to park? Right there. Right? Reserve parking. And then it's, that's not the height of it. The height of it is when you start to walk into the place. Because this is true. Members can go places that non-members can't. And when you're the worst of two worlds, and the worst of two worlds in like where there's like racket sports and this kind of thing, the worst combination is a non-member hockey player. And so non-member hockey players have to go in the separate hallway, separate door, down this thing, up this thing. I'm going, where am I going? Say wave hi to the janitor. He's in his special place too, right? (laughs) And then you emerge, and you emerge right by the dressing room. And I always broke the rules. I always pretended I didn't see the sign. I walked through, you know, through the nice desk, and the person would, excuse me, and you just keep walking It's my confession. But here, listen to this. What if they just let anybody walk where they wanted to? It would be mayhem. And who would pay for that? If you're paying a lot of money, and these, some of these things cost a lot of money, you want to be protected from having to see the likes of me walking around with a hockey bag. I always wanted our kids to win those games. And I'm sure those families were really nice. There's a lot of things I could keep confessing about those, those little Saturday afternoon times. Let me say this. And again, I don't want to send you out thinking, yeah, we're so much better than people who are parts of those kinds of things. Don't do that. But let me put it this way. If there is anything of this exclusivity in the Christian faith, anything... It does not belong. And I don't think we're there yet as a church. If anybody comes in here and feels like they're second class, even if they come in here and say, I don't believe any of this, awesome. Why is there no exclusivity in the Christian faith? Because what God has done for you, he has done for all. You don't have to achieve it. In this text, Paul has a way of putting it, and he's using their own words against them. He says, the word is near to these people who had zeal without knowledge. Paul's actually taking a reference to the religious law 
because often this, good religious people can do this. Um, so somebody does something wrong or sins or makes a mistake. You can think of this as a parent with a child or, or a religious person with you know, somebody else. Uh, and somebody does something wrong, and then they say that, well, I didn't know. And what's the answer often? No, no, you knew better. And building from biblical texts, particularly, obviously, Old Testament biblical texts, the Jewish culture at this time and Jewish teachers would say they would use this phrase, the word is near. In other words, you are without excuse. You know how you're supposed to live. You know what you're supposed to do. Paul takes the language and turns it around and uses it against their exclusivity and says, the word is near. But now he's talking not just about the word like the religious law. He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is near. Which means you can respond. What they would do is use this, the word is near, to condemn other people. And this, that's why we think we tend to do the same thing even when we're talking about Jesus. The word is near, so therefore, you know, now comes our exclusivity again. But what Paul's going to do is use that phrase to work against their exclusivity and say the word is near. Anyone, anyone can respond. Jesus is near. The gospel is near. He uses it against their exclusivity. In other words, it is not about bringing Jesus. It is not about I will ascend to heaven and get him, and then he'll, like, I'll own him and other people won't. Maybe I can offer him out. Or I'll descend to hell because he's working there. We'll bring him. Instead of that, now hear this, the gospel, and those who share Christian faith will know this even as I say it. The word is near. It's not of your own doing. And then the necessary response. The word is near. And so if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved if you call on the name of the Lord. What if you call on the name of the Lord? Well then, Scripture's clear. Salvation. You'll know the fullness of the gift that's been offered to you. Life. Life in light of the gospel. Everything changes. Every single thing changes. When you respond to the nearness of the gospel of Christ. The other way to put it is, you will be saved. Saved unto life. He takes a step back then, Paul does, and says, but how will people call on the name of the Lord if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless someone speaks? And who will speak if they have not been called? You see how this is a shift from last week. The the biggest thing, the first thing, in some ways, be careful with this, but in some ways the only thing is what God has done for us. If you lose sight of that, you get into all these terrible religious problems. But, this can be rejected. This can be ignored. You can have this salvation right there for you as a gift, but continue to live as if it has no consequence, no matter at all. How will they call if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless someone speaks? And who will speak if nobody's been called? And so I think about my place in this, and I don't even mean my place as a a preacher. Though I hope there's some sense of call. But really, I think of my place in this. I heard the gospel. The word is near. 
And I responded. The gospel is still announced. We don't have to worry about that. I mean, we have to work, but we don't have to be anxious. I heard the gospel. And I also did these two things. I believed in my heart. And I confessed with my mouth. We don't like thinking this way in our culture because it's anything that seems forced or, you know, except, except sales. I mean, we give ourselves over to these kinds of things all the time. But in terms of making a commitment, in terms of saying yes, we struggle. But the truth is, anybody who's a Christian has done these two things. I believed in my heart and I confessed with my mouth. In some ways, it's ongoing. That's why I can get emotional as I'm saying it. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm thinking about the present. I believe this. The way I would put it is, I know it. It's the only thing I know. Everything else is temporary. So the question is, of course, you could think of your non-Christian friends, or if you're here today, have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth. You can call on the name of the Lord. We need to find ways because the world is is rejected and I think sometimes rightfully so or I would say thankfully so rejected religious exclusion rejected, you know, oppressive mean um, pitches of the gospel that make the good news more like bad news. And so the church is now struggling along in some ways to try to find the ways to present this and say, you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I don't know that we're there yet as Sutherland Church. I mean, we don't have to figure it all out either, though. We can just ask. We can just invite. But I'm telling you that, yes, I long for that for my friends, for people in my family who haven't done that. But But as I long for that, I feel, by God's grace... No exclusive nature to my faith whatsoever. It's something different than we sometimes think of. I have a rebate offer in my hands here. Um, This, uh, one of the gifts that I bought, I I hasten to say it's a gift because it's a kitchen appliance. It's like slightly better than buying a vacuum. But we have one of those KitchenAid stand mixers. It's like a little mini salvation. Um, it's wonderful. And, and uh, the attachments for those KitchenAids, you can make pasta. You can do, I'm now making sales, right? Um, and so uh, there was one on one of these Bay Day sales, like in November or something, or December. And it's regularly a lot of money. But, to, you know, today only, it's way less money. And so I'm like, well, that seems obvious what I have to do. I have to buy that. And so I bought it, and they deliver it to your door. I mean, everything's free shipping, everything. And it has a mail-in rebate. So it's quite cheap to buy it on that day when it's on sale. But this is how I know God wants me to have it. Because it's like an extra sale. And so the rebate thing comes in the mail. I've got all kinds of time to mail it in. Um, and then I realize that it says it's effective from November 17th to January 7th. What day is it today? No. Oh, no, not true. It says as long as I bought it 
before January 7th, which I did. I just have to have it, now I'm just working this out in your presence, I have to have it mailed in by February 7th, so I'll get it. Uh, what do I need? I need the UPC from the box. Nope, that's gone, I recycled that. So there isn't a chance of me getting this rebate now. Do you think there's any possibility that companies do that because they know that people are like me? They could have just given me the extra little bit off, but they know. Not only is Todd going to have to remember to send this in, what are the chances of that? But he's going to have to cut the little barcode off the box. That will never happen. I still have the form, though. It's not enough to say this is how God offers us the gospel because he's, he's not offering us the gospel thinking that, you know, I'm really doing this, but I don't want them to have it. That's where the metaphor breaks down. But the concept of rejection is at the end of this text. People can reject this. Why would they reject it? And so Paul's thinking particularly of his Jewish brothers and sisters, going back to this zeal without knowledge from the beginning of the chapter. So why would some people reject this? And he, he poses the question, is it that they haven't heard? And Paul says, no, they've, they've heard. These people I'm thinking about, they've heard but they're still rejecting. Is it because they haven't understood? And Paul's going to reject that explanation as well. He's going to offer back to the rest of the chapter, he's going to offer one answer as to why they're rejecting. And he puts, he puts the onus on them. He says, because our rejection is when we are always trying to establish our own place. We won't give that up. And they won't give that up. Now, the danger is then we can kind of go, they're so terrible, we're so great. That's the exclusivity coming back in. It's totally unnecessary in Christian faith. The reminder is, and the challenge for us is, what kind of trying to establish our own place will we not give up? Do you have a particular lifestyle that you have to hold on to? And it all, you know, you might not ever lose that lifestyle, but just the fear of it is the biggest fear in your life. That's a gospel matter. You've tried to establish your own place, and maybe by God's grace or your own doing or a combination thereof, you've done that. But now you're so desperately trying to hold on to that because it's the biggest threat in your life if you lost this way that you've gained. Or is there some unfulfilled expectation that you think you have to have, and you live in the shadow of not having that? Our desire to establish our own place or to lament that we haven't is this human tendency that does work against our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We often say to one another, and we say it, I said it to the Williams family this week, to various people, even though, knowing all of this struggle they're going through, God is good. All the time, God is good. But to trust that, you have to let go of establishing your own place. Paul says that's why they've rejected Two weeks in a row to use the same illustration of that Franciscan monk who became, is currently a world-famous singer, the first Franciscan with a recording contract, an international recording contract. And he, remember what I told you last week was that the interviewer on this podcast was asking him, you know, what do you do with the, what do you do with the praise and the applause then? Because you're going to sing and people are like, oh, you're so wonderful, such a beautiful voice. And trust me, if you heard this guy, you'd be like, how do people sing like that? 
And particularly when you're coming not from a faith perspective, right? You, oh, isn't that beautiful? It's, it's not a bad thing to notice that beauty. So the interviewer says, what do you do with the applause? And remember what he said was, oh, and he smiled. I could hear it through the podcast. And he chuckled. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I know myself. I'm just a sinner like anybody else. And as they applaud for me, I know that their longing isn't even for me or the way that I sing. Their longing is for God. Do you know that even with people who are trying to establish their own place? Paul says it at the end. He says some people who didn't even know they were looking are going to find the gospel. That this longing is a longing for God. And so we close as we move to communion with this statement that we started with. Jesus is Lord. How might that sound? Do you like that it can sound triumphal? I mean, like Jesus wins? That's okay. I mean, children like winning. Right? But it's not faith. We win and they lose. It's not exclusive. This statement is not. The kingdom of heaven is God's love for all people. And that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And now hear it again, and particularly those of Christian faith. And if you don't share this faith, I don't, you know, we don't, uh, this isn't to say that anybody's second class at all. But if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. Now hear again that statement. Jesus is Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. And so we take communion this morning. Hear the words of Jesus Christ again. And as I told you, I tell you most times, this is a table of inclusion, not exclusion. Jesus gave this uh, bread and cup to Judas, knowing what was about to happen. This table is a table of inclusion that if you know Jesus Christ or you would like to, you're welcome to, to participate in this. And Jesus took the bread Heavenly Father, as we receive this communion, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, remind us of our faith, and help us to grow in our faith in such a way uh, that we can, before others, offer this tremendous gift that we know you have given to all people. Forgive us for all the ways in which we, est- we seek to establish our own standing, both religiously and in the secular culture. 
Forgive us for at times, you know, thinking we're something because of whatever it is. Our identity is in you. Our salvation is in you. We seek not to uh, look down at any other person, but help us to see, even even in some of the things that can be off-putting to us, help us to see where longing is a longing after things that eternally will matter. Longing after you. And would we, as we take this bread and this cup, would you show us what it means to walk in the light, to know this great salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.